Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Today on Quicksands, the podcast, Retirement's in focus. Rob Gronkowski, Andrew Luck, Tom Brady checks in for very superstitious and so much more today on Quicksilence the podcast along with Phil Perry who's opening in from the secondary office down at Gillette Stadium Phil how you doing doing fantastic how are my guys Great. Ryan Preventure, of course, is the other guy. He uh, spins the dials, turns the knobs up here at the uh, home office in Burlington, Massachusetts, 42 Third Avenue. Stop on by and ask about your cable bill. All right, let's get right after it. We got a new way of doing things. Here's the game plan. We're going to go with Gronk right out of the shoots in his press conference today. Andrew Luck, the reaction to his news and the fallout here in New England. Halftime comes, and we have your trivia and Tom Brady with very superstitious. Wait till you hear what he's superstitious about and what he's been using every practice for 25 years. News go, we got you that, and we got you Phil roster breakdown in the third and fourth quarter, plus my thoughts on Kylie Lloyd, field goal kicker. But right out of the gates, let's get to the first quarter. Blow the whistle. <laughs> Rob Gronkowski had a press conference. It was live streamed today. He teased everybody with a intimation that he was going to announce his future and everyone's like, oh, they go be football. No, it's not. He is going to pitch a product for Abacus Medical. And that product is CBD, which I'm not sure exactly what the C, the B or the D stand for. But anyway, here's Gronk with some heartfelt thoughts on coming back to the NFL. And wherever I go, Patriot fans always ask, am I coming back when I'm coming back? Where am I coming back? I'm walking across the street and they're like, you're walking because you're coming back. (laughs) It's crazy. I understand. I I feel that love. But I want to be clear to my fans. I needed to recover. I was not in a good place. Football was bringing me down. And I didn't like it. And I was losing that joy in life. Like, the joy. I'm sorry right now, but, oh. (laughs) Dang, let me, oh. I really was, and I was fighting through it. And I knew what I signed up for, and I knew what I was fighting through. And I knew I just have to fix myself. But I truly believe I can get to another level with my body, and I'm just in the stage, first stage right now. And when that time comes down in the future, if I have the desire to play football again, if I feel passionate about football again, if I'm feeling like I need to be out there on the field, I will go back to football. But as of right now, that is not the case. It could be the case in six months. It could be the case in two years. It could be the case in three years. It could be the case in three months. But I truly don't see it in the foreseeable future in like a week or a month. Phil A., that is the tortured Gronk that we saw 
throughout 2018, 17 and 18 and early in 19, um, really letting the curtain down again. Yeah, I was, um, I was amazed that he was as emotional as he was when he talked about some of those memories and the pain that he went through as a player, especially late in his career. We talked about it a lot on this podcast, on all of our shows, Rob Gronkowski was down. He was beat up mentally, physically, emotionally. We heard from him. He was very open about it. He, he, he rarely tried to hide it. And so I'm going to give you, Tom, a, a round of applause from down here at Gillette Stadium because your column this morning reacting to Rob Gronkowski's press conference, I thought had the winning take, which was this is a guy who clearly wants to continue to be in the public eye. It helps him to leave the door open, quote unquote, on a future return to football. But that man that we saw today, the one who was in tears remembering the amount of pain he was in as a player, is not returning to football anytime soon. And I don't think he's coming back, period. And and really, can you imagine how many times this guy has been reduced to tears? He's an emotional guy. He's, he's got He's got a great heart, and I think everybody has already understood that. As much as people might think he is um, not the sharpest knife in the drawer or not a deep thinker, I think he's a very sensitive person. When I spoke to him after the Super Bowl and the hours after the Super Bowl, he said, come here, look at my thigh, touch this. And it was grotesque. It looked like he had elephantitis. It was that swollen. And he went on to explain today that he ended up having a liter of blood drain from that, and he was in tears that night from it. How many times do you figure he was in tears from back surgeries that he endured at the ages of 20 or 24 or 28? Um, How many times was he tortured by the idea of, I know that I'm supposed to practice, but my mind can't get around doing it after I've just gone through what I went through? The guy who was rolling on the field in the snow in 2015, Phil, after he got hit in the knee in Denver, that gave me a very concrete glimpse of, because he wasn't really hurt, he was just fucking terrified. And this is cathartic for him, I think, to a degree as well. Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, when you look at how he's approaching now his, his post-playing days, Again, it benefits him to to have that connection to the league that that sort of lingers over him. Is he coming back? Is he not? Uh, but I don't think you know. It's obviously no coincidence. The 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 first major business that he has attached himself to post playing career is about pain management. I, I just feel like all of this stuff is way too fresh in his mind, and it's why I've always leaned towards. He's not coming back. He's not coming. I don't care how many times he leaves the door open. What we saw from him last year and what we heard from him last year and how he explained it to us is fresher in his mind than anybody else's. And we probably don't even know the half of what he went through. And so for him to put himself through that again, to me, seems unfathomable. I think that you and I, to pat ourselves on the back, have done a really good job of trying to chart the arc of his mental struggle. I think that that you were down there for so many of the press conferences. I had conversations at his locker with him. Um, You know, I've talked to him offline a little bit and and folks around him. It's been clear to us 
that his mind was so tortured by the uh, by the specter of of going down the seam and looking back for a Tom Brady pass and knowing that I can either catch this and be a hero or I might end up in the hospital or with a destroyed knee or with a concussion or with a ma- mutilated back. And that, it's not going to go away. So to me, I think it's interesting and almost ironic that we have regarded him over the years, both the media and fans and the public at large as kind of a dopey big guy, yet he's the one who's preying on our gullibility and using it against us by keep saying, I might come back. He's not coming back. And he's just, I love the fact that he's got us on the end of his hook. And he's just going to keep jerking us around. And we're going to keep jumping through every hoop we have to, to document it. Right, Phil? Definitely. And it's, it is, I mean, man, when you track just last year alone, and I know this is, this stretches back even farther for that, for, for guys dealt with as many injuries as he has. But I remember I did a story going into week two about those routes where he is running down the seam. And I talked to him and said, Hey man, it's football. It, it could happen at any time, any route. If you've got that thought in your head that you're about to get injured running on a dangerous play like that, it's not going to help you when you're running the route. But I talked to Brady after two and he sort of acknowledged, you know, we went through the litany of injuries that were created by that route alone. And it was almost like, and it couldn't have been striking Brady for the first time. But when I talked to Brady about his, you know, as we, we listed them off together, I had three or four in my head. And then he added a couple more on top of that. And a couple of them were concussions, the ACL injury, uh, the Earl Thomas hit that, that jarred his insides. And, and, I think essentially forced him out a couple weeks later um, for that season in 2016. He said, Hey dude, you might be onto something here. (laughs) Like almost like it it didn't even really strike Brady, but a few weeks later he's thanking Brady at the end of the game because he knew he wasn't at the height of his powers. He was thanking Brady for going to him at the end of the game because he knew he was a shell of himself essentially. And I remember talking to him after a press conference where he was, he was short with us, which was totally unlike him. And it happened a couple of times, but I stopped him after because I was, the one sort of asking him the questions that seemed to be bothering him. And we had never had any sort of issues in the past. We got along pretty well. And so I stopped and I said, Hey man, you know, is everything okay? Or, you know, is there anything that was out of bounds in there? And he had at that point kind of composed himself and he said, you know, it's just been a bad couple of days, but I'm trying to, I'm trying to decide to be, you know, to be happy essentially is how he put it. He was going to make the determination. I'm going to be happy and I'm just going to figure out a way to power through this. And that alone, sort of tells you where his, his mindset was at. And when you look from probably that juncture on to the end of the year, it was almost as if a relief washed over the guy because his attitude entirely changed. And he got healthier, which helped. But it was almost, okay, it's a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm going to ball out until the end comes. And I, it came, and I don't think it's going to be turned back. Meanwhile, we're going to move on. Into our second quarter now with another end of the line for a player that comes a little too soon. All right, on now to the second quarter. We've all been digesting the Andrew Luck decision to step away from football that we learned about on Saturday night. Josh McDaniels has an interesting perspective because he was at the altar with the Colts, Andrew Luck being their best man, and about to uh, be wedded before the Patriots stood up and said they had... uh, reason to object to that marriage and they reeled Josh McDaniels back in here is Josh McDaniels on Andrew Luck and whether or not Josh feels like he dodged a bullet in not accepting that job 
you know, he's a he's a great player, and uh, you know, I think everybody's obviously free to make their own choices about what's best for them and their family and their future, and um, you know, certainly respect his decision. I think the league will miss him. Um, I think he's a like I say, he's a really talented player. He's one of the toughest guys at that position in the league. And, you know, we've played a lot of games against those guys. So um, I'm a football fan, you know, and I grew up the son of a football coach. So um, anybody that's, you know, that, you know, that feels like they have to, you know, do that, it kind of breaks my heart a little bit because, you know, you, you love for these guys to play as long as they can. But um, totally respect his decision. I mean, certainly we went through it with Rob a little bit. I don't know if the mm-hmm. circumstances are the same but um you know any any great player uh you got to give them you know credit for making the choices that are best for them and at the same time i think football in general misses those guys you know when they're gone relative to your being really close to having taken that job and now an important player that you probably would have gone there to for a large part of the reasons you would have gone there um it's an awkward question going to ask it anyway do you feel as if you kind of dodged a bullet I don't think it had anything to do with that. And I I think once we made the decision uh, to stay, I think then it was right for me. It wouldn't have mattered. None of this would have mattered, you know, anything after that, after we made the choice to stay. And again, I'd I'd say that regardless of what happened. All right, Phil, let's get into, let's get into first the McDaniels aspect of it, because it has to be somewhere in the recesses of his mind that he's realizing, my God, I could have woken up today and have Jacoby Brissett as my starting quarterback, which it could be worse, but he expected a lot better. Totally. And what's fascinating to me is about six six months ago, I wonder if he was having any of the opposite sorts of thoughts where he was saying, gosh, this team actually looks like it's built for a a nice deep run here and, and Boy, Andrew looks like he's he's finally gotten healthy and he can be effective again. And uh, this was one of the teams that I think we all felt like was was in the running to make the conference championship game. It was going to be one of those three or four best teams in mm-hmm. the conference. And now the picture has just changed dramatically just because of this one player no longer being available. And it's funny because he is so undependable that – we understood that he might not be there anyway, but the specter of him being there meant that the Colts were going to be a very good team because I don't care how you want to slice and dice it and the number of times the Patriots have picked him off or sent him home with a loss. He's a good player. He's one of the best in the business when he was at his height. I would say one of the seven best in the league quite easily. And when he was at his best, top five. So he's not not there anymore. What does that do to the AFC picture in your estimation, Phil? You have New England, you have Kansas City, in the AFC North, I, I, you have Baltimore, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, and Cincy, so that's a wash. Out in the AFC West, you have San Diego and, and Kansas City, but you know I don't know how seriously you take um, Denver or the other team that I'm forgetting about. The Raiders. Thank you. And then the, uh, in the South, you have Indianapolis, Houston, um, Jacksonville. I think Jacksonville is a team that people are overlooking, but this certainly must move Indianapolis to a point where they could be the third best team in their own division, right? 
that's not out of the realm of possibility. And for me, when you look at the entire landscape of the AFC, it only widens that division between number two and everyone else. Because I, I think there already was a bit of a division there. Everybody looks at the Patriots and the Chiefs as, as probably the two best and easily in the conference. And then I saw the Colts as number three and as a team really on the rise, as a team that, that probably will be even better in 2020 because of how young the roster is and how talented it looks at different places outside of that quarterback position. And you figured, even though he's dealt with the injury, you kind of penciled Andrew Luck in for the next five years to be the Indianapolis Colts quarterback. And so now I have no idea who number three is in your mind, Tom. I, I might put the Chargers there um, based on some of the young talent they have defensively. They just lost Derwin James, which is a killer, but they still have some really young, talented pieces on that side of the ball. And maybe the Texans are, are close as number four, but I still look as the thing that did them in last year was their offensive line, and they really didn't make any improvements there. So maybe if they end up with Trent Williams or something, we could talk about the Texans being number three, but that's how I would see the top four in this conference right now. Pretty outrageous to think that Tom Brady has outlasted both Peyton Manning and Andrew Luck and any other assortment of quarterbacks you want to toss in along the way who've entered the league since 2000. Um, I wonder if Andrew Luck would still be playing in the NFL if he had been in a Josh McDaniels system or with a coach or GM like Nick Casario or Bill Belichick or with an offensive line coach like Dante Scarnecchi. I mean, you talk about how players are really in professional sports. You're a slave to wherever you are drafted to and whoever's in front of you and whatever system is put in place. It's it's really a hard deal. I'm just gas bagging here, but what do you think of what I'm saying? No, I, I agree with you. And I, I would really look at the general manager spot, I think maybe first and foremost, and how this team was constructed around luck after he was drafted, because there simply was not a serious investment made to protecting their most valuable player. And you look at Ryan Grigson and you say, man, I like Philip Dorsett too. He's a nice guy and all, but you already had T.Y. Hilton on the roster. And then you went and got Dorsett, who was thought to be at that point in time, a downfield threat, much like T.Y. Hilton. So you have an offense that's based around the deep passing game. And yet you have an offensive line that can't protect for, for longer than a second and a half. How do you think that's going to end up? He got sacked 41 times as a rookie. 32 in 2013, 27 in 2014. He was sacked another 41 times in 2016, and he missed all of 2017. And I know he's a guy who uses his legs, and he puts himself in harm's way. And so he he deserves some of this um, this criticism as well in terms of what broke Andrew Luck. But when you have the the offense that you had for the first handful of years of his career, and he was probably forced to, to use his legs more he was, than he would yeah. have even liked because he had no protection. And so I think that's sort of the shame of it all is you had somebody who clearly wasn't qualified to be a general manager, was general manager for several years and helped ruin this guy's career. Jacoby Brissett, the propaganda cannon, anointing him as the next great quarterback in the AFC, a rare leader, a genius, um, a talented player, one of the top 20 quarterbacks is what Frank Wright called him 
in April. God damn, it sounds now like that he'd be top eight if you put a microphone in front of these maniacs out in Indianapolis. Jacoby Brissett is a garden variety starter. If he ends up being Nick Foles, damn, that was a great career for him. Your thoughts? I think he's going to have trouble with accuracy. That that was the one thing we saw here, especially in his second year, where he just did not make any strides, was where the football was placed when it left his fingertips. And that's something that I'm not entirely sure can be taught. I'm sure he can be more comfortable in the offensive system that he's in. I'm sure he can be um, – more aware of where his receivers will be placed all over the field and maybe that will help the football find its target when it gets there but from what we saw this was somebody who had a difficult time getting the ball from point a to point b and that is right there with decision making one of the two pillars that every quarterback needs to have any modicum of success in this league and so i understand he had a he had a a fairly decent 2017 that showed some promise. Uh, but I think there is a ceiling on Jacoby Brissett's um, future here because the accuracy just is not where it needs to be for somebody who is going to be an elite quarterback in the NFL. All right. Much hue and cry about the reaction on Saturday night as Andrew Luck left the field for halftime and the crowd at whatever the hell that joint is, Lucas Oil Stadium had now in its hot little hands the news that that quarterback was quitting. And since then, we've heard a lot of players criticize the fans there in Indianapolis, and and rightfully so for their reaction. But now we're three days on, and David DeCastro from the Pittsburgh Steelers, who played alongside Andrew Luck at Stanford, said, man, they treat us like circus animals. So here's the rant that I threw into our email, and and I said, you know what? I'm just going to spit that right into the mic when when, when it comes down. Here here it is. You know what? Rant starts now. It wasn't nice for people to boo Andrew Luck. But we need to stop acting like it's the fall of civilization, for Christ's sake. Yes, David DeCastro. Fans show up to watch you because you are the entertainment, like a circus animal, or a rock star, or a comedian, or a magician. Is this just dawning on you? As for Luck in the stadium, on the sidelines, at a game, he was Andrew Luck, Colts quarterback. So when he was walking off the field, at that moment... That's the role he was in. He wasn't Andrew Luck, ordinary citizen. Andrew Luck, 29-year-old, laid low by injury. He was the quarterback who would be no more. So people registered their displeasure with the fact that he was quitting. Maybe they should have chanted, We're very sorry for your mental and physical anguish, but are at the moment personally disappointed that your decision... It's going to render our team less effective. But a boo was a little bit more expedient. So it was mean. But please, everybody, toughen up a little bit. This shouldn't be new to anyone. So we got booed. The world spins on. So, end of rant. Now, halftime. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to halftime. We have a very special guest on Very Superstitious. 
right in on the wall, and it's Tom Brady, Patriots quarterback. Last week, you remember, I went around kind of as a result of the Antonio Brown helmet controversy, asking players if there's anything they're really attached to that they've had for a long time that they can't picture themselves doing without. And as it turns out, Tom Brady absolutely has one of those things. So my idea was because of Antonio and his helmet. And I figured, you know, it's interesting because guys get attached to shit as you were with your helmet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Tell me about your shoulder pads. I've worn them for 25 years. 25 years. They've gotten reconditioned a little bit. But I think once you find something you like, you kind of stick with it. And I've always kind of liked the way they felt, the shape of them. And then, you know, people would try to put me in a lot of other ones, but, I mean, I never... That's you know. 1994. Yeah. Junior year, maybe? That was my um, was my first year in Michigan, so spring oh, of the okay. fall of 95. They gave me those, and then when I left college, I took them with me, and then just used them here. How... Do you feel as if you get the same protection that you would otherwise? I mean, you, I mean, you have to use your shoulders and have the rotation and everything yeah. else that you want to get. I took these, so they reconditioned those a little bit. Sometimes they'll change those pads out, but that's the same plastic. And they definitely haven't changed those. Same size. And a lot of times they, the models change. They don't make the same ones as they used to. So. Isn't that amazing that you're wearing shoulder pads that are older than a large portion of the players that you play with? Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I would say 90, yeah, 80% of them I probably, it's the, that's right. And the helmet, um, just to ask you about that, that was a hard thing to switch. Why was it hard? Because of the feel? Because of the I've been wearing the same lines. thing for, for a long time. been wearing the same thing for, you know, forever. So you get used to one thing, one feel. This is a pound heavier, so it's 25% heavier on your head, which, you know, that takes a lot of getting used to. So I wish it was lighter. I tried to make it lighter. They couldn't make it lighter, you know. That's funny. So you the try it. and you, Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I had 25% to everything. I had 25% to your pen, mm-hmm. you know, or 25% smaller keys on your keyboard. And tell me how that feels. It's a little different. All right, good get by us over here at Quick Slants, the podcast. Tom Brady weighing in on his shoulder pads. God bless him. Love the guy. Love the guy. Love the guy. Meanwhile, time now for trivia. We unearthed this last week as well. And here's your question for this week. We're going to answer it in the fourth quarter. The question is, if Julian Edelman leads the Patriots in receiving yards this year, he will be the third 33-year-old to do so. Okay? Two 33-year-olds have done so prior to him in the last 40 years. In 1979, there was a 33-year-old who led the team in receiving yards. Also in 1988, a 33-year-old led the team in receiving yards. So Edelman would be the third oldest by birth date if he were to do it. You don't have to use Google if you don't want to. Just see if you get the answer right at the end. Third quarter coming up. Hey, boys, so a lot to talk about when it comes to this roster breakdown. Roster is going to be broken down from 90 to 53 very soon. And so a good time to talk about guys on the bubble. We just watched the third preseason game last week. 
can talk about some of the activations that have occurred in the last handful of days here where you have Demarius Thomas and Josh Gordon both returning to practice, sort of clouding the picture at receiver. And I think that's where we should start, Tom. I think we should start at receiver. And I want to ask you, do you think that this is such an oddball year at that position that the Patriots should keep six receivers, not including Matthew Slater, meaning you would have a potentially, potentially two receivers on your 53-man roster who are NFL players who are either unused on game day or healthy scratches. Does that sound like a good idea to you? I think it would be smarter to release Demarius Thomas and ask him to stay in Norfolk or Mansfield or Attleboro or the greater Foxborough area, understanding that nobody else is probably going to sign him and the Patriots are going to pay him for his trouble and they can cut him whatever goddamn deal they want because they get $14 million in salary cap. So if they have to pay out the nose at some point otherwise, do it, but keep him on the hook. So that's my, unless you want to sign him and bring him back, but Nikhil Harry is going to take up a roster spot and his ass has been useless for going on three weeks. So, but he has to be complicated. There. Harry, right. in your estimation, I think that he's he's one of several pieces that makes it complicated. The injury makes it complicated because when is he going to be ready? I mean, if he's going to be ready, maybe not for week one, but he's going to be you know great by week three. Do you put him on IR and say, "Hey, Nikhil, you missed so much practice time. You're you're essentially worthless to us, even if you're going to be healthy by week three. So we'll see you week nine. That feels a little bit extreme to me. I would lean towards what you're doing if Demarius Thomas would be amenable to it, which is to say, you're going to be our fourth or fifth receiver as it is, Demarius. And so rather than us waste your time, make sure you stay in shape. We're, there's a good chance we're going to need you at some point here because there are so many question marks on this roster at this position. And so hang loose. The tough thing about that is there's no guarantee, if you're him, that they are going to bring you back. Say Philip Dorsett lights it up or Jacoby Myers suddenly shows a ton of improvement. Um, you know, And he can't work out with the team uh, in that scenario. So it's, it's interesting. And, what argues and for think, it, though, what argues for keeping six is how mm-hmm. wafer thin they are at tight end. If you keep Nikhil Harry, which you're going to, Demarius Thomas and Josh Gordon, you have three – Six two, six three and above, two hundred and twenty-five and above. I'm not sure if Gordon is over two twenty-five. Um, targets who can win jump balls, who should be able to win contested balls. You didn't have that at the wide receiver spot last year at all with Hogan, Dorsett, and Patterson at the beginning of the year. You did have it with Gronk. Now you would have it with those contested catch guys. So go thin as a friggin' rail at tight end and keep all three of those guys wide out, Phil. You could do that. My question would be how many of those guys would you be willing to play at once? Great. Yep. And they don't play tight end. So you still you don't have any of that that deception involved with the tight end position where you could say, actually this guy's gonna play in line and we're gonna run it down your throat because you've got you know, you got four two hundred and twenty five pound linebackers on the field. So it's it's complicated. I would keep six as of right now, because I think the reason they activated Demarius Thomas off of PUP is they said to themselves, we actually might need this guy's help like immediately because we don't know where Nikhil Harry's health is. And Jacoby Myers might not be ready to contribute. And who knows where Josh Gordon is going to be a week from now, Never mind six weeks from now. 
And so I think you just load up there. You give yourself multiple contingency plans and you hope for the best. And it might mean you got to cut Brian Hoyer or you've got to cut somebody like a Landon Roberts or you got to try to trade Dietrich wise. But I think it's that important to be settled at that mm-hmm. spot. And I think there are so many unsettled people there that you just got to throw numbers at it. I want a minute from you on these other bubbly spots on the roster. You mentioned Dietrich Wise. We all understand he's a very good player. Adam Butler, a very good player at the level that they're at. They're very good for those levels. Talk to me about the defensive line and who might be on the outside looking in. I really do feel like, unfortunately for us, because he's phenomenal for for those of us in this profession, uh, Dietrich Wise might be on the outside looking in just because he does not look like a scheme fit to me. And that may be going too far into the X's and O's. Bill Belichick may look at us and say, guys, he's a pretty productive player as a young player for two years. And we're not going to be a three, four all the time. We are constantly mixing up our fronts and it would help us to have a four, three base end type on the roster. That's not named Michael Bennett. Awesome. Linebacker. Landon Roberts, uh, somewhat similar conversation, uh, but that's a position where even when you are, in your base, you only have two off-the-ball linebackers, and we think that's going to be Dante Hightower and Jawan Bentley for the most part. Uh, I think what hurts Landon Roberts, uh, even though he was on my, fit, my most recent 53-man projection, what might hurt him is he is not a big-time special teams guy. He was out with the first-team kickoff unit in the third preseason game, uh, and that might be a signal that, hey, they're trying to use him a little bit more there, so he has some more value. But I would look at somebody like Calvin Munson as maybe pushing him for a roster spot because with Brandon King out, you need somebody who can be almost a full-time special teamer. Munson's played a ton in the kicking game this summer, and he's looked pretty good when he's been off the ball at linebacker. And so I think there's another guy in Roberts who could be on the outside looking at Corner. Duke Dawson is the name that has consistently been on the bubble through the course of the summer. But, Tom, I don't know about you, second round pick in his second year and the guy hasn't played a single snap in the regular season it just feels too early for them to give up on him you you do a lot of work on these players coming out of college you spend a high-end pick on the guy about a year ago and all of a sudden you're going to cut bait because you've loaded up on good players at that position to me it's like pitching can never have enough good corners and i think they're going to keep him and they're just going to keep a big old group of corners. They kept seven corners going into last year, and if they keep Dawson, it would be the same number again this year. All right, Phil, as always, I want you people to look at his roster breakdowns, releases them steadily, and he puts a lot of work and time into them, and not just because he puts a lot of work and time into them, should you click on them, they're insightful, okay? And you like insight because that's why you're here, insight. That's the end of the third quarter, ladies and gentlemen. All right, here we are, fourth quarter. That means we get to some politically incorrect takes, politically incorrect takes, and your trivia answer, too. Hey, Phil. Hi, Tom. Hey, Phil. Carly Lloyd, um, U.S. women's national team soccer player, uh, kicked a 55-yard field goal that was successful at Eagles camp recently. Um, She also had many other field goal attempts that were not as successful, but the one that went through from 55 gained plenty of traction, and, well, it should. Um, I couldn't kick a field goal from 55, but what we've gotten to now is a hue and cry for Carly Lloyd to perhaps have a tryout with an NFL team, and Phil, are you ready for a politically incorrect take? Oh, boy. 
Good. Because I think it's a little insulting to the rest of the NFL, and it's a little bit patronizing to Carly Lloyd for us to suspend all conversation about whether or not this is even practical. We have a 37-year-old individual, regardless of gender, who has never done this, has probably never worn a helmet, has never made a tackle, has never waited for the timing of the snap, spin of the ball, the hold, and then a kick with a cleat with people bearing down on her. And we're thinking that she might be able to do a credible job without a six-step run-up. What if Clint Dempsey, Phil, or Alexi Lalas had said at the conclusion or of their men's national team career that they wanted to try field goal kicking? We'd say GTFO, okay? This isn't a pastime. It's not a hobby. So to me, when you have most likely Florida high school kickers who can make it from 55, and certainly any mess of college kickers coming out who don't have a job right now, who can make it from 55. The idea that we should seriously bandy about the idea that Carly Lloyd could play National Football League in the National Football League as a kicker is a disservice to her. And I don't think that we're using the same measuring stick that we should. And I think it's patronizing, in my estimation, for us to do that, to say, oh, isn't it? It's an adorable story. Let's have Look, it's not an adorable story. It wouldn't work. It wouldn't happen. And to pretend otherwise is actually an insult to the notion of equality. If we're going to talk about equality, women's and men's equality, let's talk about, in general, the equality of opportunity to do the job and whether the person who has an opportunity to do that job is well-suited to do that. And I know it's just a lark, okay? And when Annika Sorenstam or Michelle Wee played in PGA Tour events, I was all for that. You know why? They could go out and compete on the same level. They didn't have a team relying upon them. They were individuals. But in this team sport, it's totally different. So you got people fighting for a chance, who are pouring their guts out, who are concerned about luck and grunk and their mental states after having participated in this extremely physical and violent game. People hand-wringing about CTE. But yet we're going to actually suspend all disbelief and say, go, you know, you go girl to Carly Lloyd because she kicked a 55-year-old field goal at practice and pretend that it's actually realistic that she could kick in the NFL. Phil, I'm not, as they say, I'm not there for this. <laughs> so here's, here is where I will quibble with you. I feel like there are teams in the league that need to do a better job of exhausting their options at this position because there are here in new England. We, we don't understand what it's like in Minnesota or what it's been like in Tampa Bay where these franchises just have no clue at this position and they haven't been able to settle the thing and it has lost them games and it has lost them playoff spots. And it feels like even though there are all these, these athletes, as you mentioned, I'm sure there are high school kickers and college kickers who can boot 55 yarders. No problem. Where are they? Why can't they make it to the league? Like what, what is happening at this spot that, there are NFL franchises, one in particular, Tampa Bay, that is willing to spend a second-round pick on a guy who was not an NFL-caliber player. Chicago, too. How is this, how is this happening? Chicago, double-doink city. They, <laughs> they, I, they need to have more people showing up and trying to win this job. And so, I, and I understand the physical part of it, too, as you mentioned, and this is just a lark. But, like, is, was Martin Gramatica any better suited physically to withstand the punishment of the NFL than Carly Lloyd? Like, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. So those are just, those are the two things I would say. I just feel like 
uh, more resources need to be thrown at this position, and teams should be throwing their doors open to anyone that can kick the ball and maybe do it in a high-stress situation. Something well, that's that her contention. Have ex- some experience with, and, and that's and that's her contention, Phil. That, that is her contention, and and that's why I don't villainize her for moving ahead with the conversation. She said, "Look, I've been in high-stress, high-leverage situations my entire life. I'm not going to sit here and say I couldn't do this." That's what an unbelievable competitor would do. Me? I'd say, you shitting me? I couldn't do that. Do not put me out there. I guarantee you, Phil, you, were, you could catch an NFL pass and get your ass out of bounds in an NFL game. I could complete one. I could complete a handoff. Okay? I could run down and block on a – well, not block. I could cover a kick if I, if I stayed out of the way. We can do these things. But to do it at a level that's acceptable and to take up a, anybody's time with a realistic notion – that you could make the team is, is cuckoo, in my estimation. And we just don't have the balls right now, I think, as a society and as a media and as a fan base to say, look, 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 look. This to me, and maybe I'm looking at it through a weird prism, but I think it's patronizing to pretend that there aren't extreme levels of physicality that need to be exhibited before you go in and try out for an NFL team. And I think the guys who've already done it, who've been in college and everywhere else, I think it's an insult to them to see Carly Lloyd, who's already participated at high levels in professional sports anyway, get a chance to do it otherwise. But be that as it may. Phil, it's time for the trivia answer. Now I'm going to ask you. Hell yeah. Okay, here's the question one more time. If Julian Edelman leads the New England Patriots in receiving yards in 2019, he will be the third 33-year-old in the last 40 years to do so. Who were the other two 33-year-olds? The first one came in 1979. The second one came in 1988. And they were different individuals, of course. Um, Could you tell me who those two other 33-year-olds were that led the Patriots in receiving yards at the age of 33. 1979. You're never going to get 1988. You got a good chance at 88. You're never going to get 79. 33 in 1988. Stanley Morgan. Bam! That's your 1988. You know how many yards he had to lead the team? Thank goodness for that. Uh, I'm going to guess 833. 562. That's a bad team, baby. Different era. Different era. Meanwhile, interestingly enough, and also illustrative of a different era, was the great Harold Jackson, whose final NFL stop after being a superstar with the Eagles and the Rams, stopped by New England and caught over 1,200 yards worth of balls for the Patriots in 2000, excuse me, 1979. And he did it on 46 catches, Phil. 22.5 yards per catch average for Harold Jackson. Why is that? Because defensive backs sucked back then. Now, Stanley Morgan must have been on that team as well, correct? Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, I think he led the team in receiving yards the year before. Then Harold came in, tore it up. I think he won number 29, too. Anyway, that's going to do it for the pod this week. I got to go uh, do the quick slants to television show right now, running late. I'm glad we had your contributions, Phil. Always happy to to, uh, to chip in here and uh, have a great television show. All right. Ryan Preventure, I'm Tom. See you.